And I think we have a bit of a problem with democracy. I think that democracy has... Uh, the more you legitimise democracy, um, then the more it strays into things which are, are no part of its business. And so now you've got politicians de uh, deciding um, what size your fizzy drinks can can be and things like that. It's got nothing to do with them. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Harrison Griffiths. I'm communications officer at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, what can policymakers still learn from Adam Smith? The 9th of March marks 247 years since Adam Smith's seminal Wealth of Nations was published. Despite being widely considered as one of the founding fathers of economics, many of Smith's insights remain ignored by policymakers. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Eamon Butler, who's the director and co-founder of the Adam Smith Institute. As well as founding the ASI in 1977, Eamon has written an extensive bibliography of books, primers, articles, essays on the canons of free market economics, particularly you know, Friedman, Hayek, Smith himself. His work's been translated into innumerable languages, often by the IA. I believe you are mm -hmm. one of our best-selling authors. I think I not? must be short of Hayek. Uh, maybe short of Hayek, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining us. So when we look at Adam Smith's legacy today, as I said in the introduction, he is still revered across politics, across different schools of economic thought, and yet so many of the insights that came out with the Wealth of Nations that had a profound impact on policymaking are being ignored today. So how can Smith be relevant to convincing policymakers to change tack in the modern day? Well, uh, it depends whether policymakers want to change tack or whether they're just actually managerialists and, and their, their interest is only the next election rather than, uh, than the future. Uh, so I'm very sceptical about that. But if they really did uh, want to uh, focus on the long-term uh, health of the nation and indeed the world, um, they the insight they would take from Smith, I think, is that uh, free markets and free trade are what generates value. That people exchange, when people exchange, you, you buy things, you sell things from each other. If that's vol a voluntary exchange, you only do it because you think you're going to be better off. I pay some money and I buy some toothpaste because I'm short of toothpaste and I want some toothpaste, but, and I value the toothpaste more than the money. And the shopkeeper has got plenty of toothpaste and you know, values the money more than the... So we're both better off. And when you start putting rules and regulations on all of that, um, then you depress that value which is created by the exchange. So I think that's the, the, the first lesson from Smith, that um, just trust markets and competition to deliver the goods, and they will deliver the goods, um, probably better than you think you can with all sorts of rules and regulations on how people trade. And you bring up the idea of mutual, mutually beneficial exchange, and it's no coincidence that when Smith and people like Ricardo were writing that society, the economy, was just about to escape from the mm. zero-sum Malthusian trap that was the reality for the vast majority of human history. A big problem that certainly strikes me in so many of our political discussions when it comes to what the government ought to do is that people presume there is a zero-sum game, that my benefit is your loss, my uh, supposed benefit from this policy change means you have to lose, I am owed something by you. How important is it for free marketers, 
publicly in, in writing, we have conversations, to really explain and distill this argument that markets are the only way to escape the zero-sum trap, to mean that everybody can be better off. Yes, it's absolutely essential, of course, and, and you know we need to make people understand what they didn't understand in the 18th century when Smith was writing this revolutionary work, The Wealth of Nations, um, that uh, uh, it's not just the person who gets the money from a transaction who benefits. Uh, this was the whole mercantilist idea in the 18th century, that you had to stop people in, in uh, you, you had to stop. Ex you had to export as much as you could so that you got lots of money back and you had to stop people importing to you. So the... Uh, have I got that the right way around? Yes, got, <laughs> the gold comes in, the stuff goes out. Exactly. Right? And, then and you still hear a lot of Tories even today talking about the importance of an export-led economy. Absolutely, neutral, absolutely. And the assumption is that you know, we, you know, we need the money, we want to keep hold of our money, we don't want to buy goods from abroad, but we want to send our goods from abroad. And, and you, it ignores the fact that, OK, um, you pay money to buy goods from abroad, but that's because you value those goods because, you know, we have, it's the middle of winter here and we have fresh fruit and vegetables from all around the planet. What's wrong with that? Okay, we can't grow all these things in ourselves in cold weather. Um, so we, we buy it from other people. And that's absolutely essential. And I think uh, now um, when we're looking at uh, free trade, because uh, with Brexit, the UK has left the European Union um, and now the world ought to be its oyster. We should be saying to people around the world, we're going to impose absolutely no tariffs on any goods that you want to bring in, because that's just a tax on our own people. It stops our people getting the goods that they want. So I think it's absolutely essential that we should make these arguments. And you've seen over the course of the post-2008 era, really, that the mercantilism, the protectionism is on the rise again. Mm. Um, yes. Almost the greatest fruition of of what Smith argued was the, when so the advent of, of a massive expansion of free trade in the late 1970s and 80s, which just seemed to continue on an upward trajectory, has come to a bit of a halt. People are beginning now to erect trade barriers, again, whether through tariffs or non-tariff barriers to trade. And we see it a little bit in the contemporary circumstance with uh, the uh, green subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act in the mm -hmm. United States and mm -hmm. the EU and potentially the UK getting involved and saying, you're undermining our manufacturers, we need to compete like for like with those subsidies. Is this a grand example of where somebody needs to brush up on their Adam Smith <laughs> and understand that it doesn't matter? That, as I think you said, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production and the interest of the consumer ought to be attended to only so far as it may be necessary for promoting that of the consumer. Yes. Well, uh, Adam Smith, of course, uh, wrote that we should be extremely suspicious of any new law that is promoted by business people um, because um, they're probably doing it for their own reasons, not for the interests of the general public. And this is what happens when you start talking about protectionist measures, um, that every, every industry comes out of the woodwork and says, well, you, you know, we want protection from Italian tomatoes or American Korean steel or, or whatever it happens to be um, and then uh, th then you've had it you know, the, 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 you know if you concede to one then you've got to concede to everybody um, and uh, I, I think in the, in the in the world trade situation I think that you've got to realize that there's economics and every economist believes that free trade is a good thing it benefits everybody and, and maximizes value but there's also politics
And so many countries use trade as, a, as an economic weapon, or a political weapon, rather. And uh, that, is, I think, is the problem. So I think we are in this strange situation where we were getting more and more and more liberal in, in trade. And you know, the, the World Trade Organization uh, was, was doing a, a pretty good job, actually, in keeping down tariffs. I'm not sure it kept down non-tariff barriers very, very well, but it was going in the right direction. Now it's going in the wrong direction because people are saying, well, you know, we can't buy from China, we can't buy from here, we can't buy from there. And, you know, there's some truth in that. I mean, if you're going to buy things from other people, you've got to have an alternative if that thing goes down. Um, you know, you might have a, a fantastic plumber who comes around and fixes your, your house. But if that person goes out of business, then you've got to have an alternative. So, so that's the, the important thing. And, and that is why a lot of people are saying, well, we should ma manufacture all these things at home. But that's not necessarily the right solution. What you need is another supplier, possibly one that's better at doing these things than you are, uh, if you can, rather than try and do everything yourself. So I, I don't think we should retreat into a sort of protectionist, let's, let's uh, grow all our food and make all our clothes and do everything else at home. Uh, I, I think we should look for a wide range of suppliers around the planet. Absolutely. And I believe it's also the case that Smith was a proponent of uh, sort of uh, people colloquially call it McDonald's peace theory. Um, it's, it's most, uh, it's, I think it's very famously put forward by uh, Immanuel Kant, Kant as well, that, you know, when uh, goods cross borders, soldiers don't. Do you think that that's an area where he's certainly been proven wrong over the past few years? You talked about China. Um, has opening up as opening up free trade to China kind of backfired and put a question mark over some of the things he thought. Yes, it was Bastiat who uh, talked about soldiers crossing borders and things. Oh, was it? But actually, he didn't actually say that. But it's pretty much what what he thought. And uh, yes, I think Adam Smith thought exactly the same. That, that he thought that uh, free trade was was a very beneficial thing because it it brought people together. Um, because you have to sort of understand or at least uh, accept the differences of other people. That um, I was enjoying some dates uh, uh, the weekend, and uh, those dates come from Iran. Now, I probably have very little in common with farmers in Iran, um, but nevertheless, they produce wonderful dates, and I like dates, so I buy those, uh, th those dates from them. Um, so it's a way of, of bridging the gap between people and between nations, and, and it is therefore very positive. Um, but again, you, you have to make, you have to realise that there's good people and bad people, and there are people who will, for political reasons, use, use trade against you, and that's and you've got to be prepared for that. I think. Absolutely. And to, to go back to something you mentioned before, when we were talking about the green subsidy wars. Uh, you should, ought to always be suspicious when businessmen are sat around the same table with a government minister. Yes. Anybody who's familiar with some of the principles of Smith will ha have a critical eye when the government comes out and proudly says, oh, we've been consulting with business and the experts on this. Um, does I th what I think is the most famous quote from the Wealth of Nations is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker, that we expect our dinner, but from regard to their own interest. I think a lot of people understand that and accept that. But is there not something to this from uh, the government perspective rather than the market perspective? 
And often when people talk about the failure of the market, they say, well, then there ought to be a government solution. Mm, yeah. Does that uh, insight about self-interest uh, need to be talked about more in the modern discourse when it comes to government decision-making and not just market decision-making? Yes, I, I don't talk about uh, market failure. Uh, markets fail, fail very rarely. It's usually the rules and regulations that are put on them by government. I talk about government failure. I mean, that is if you want to see real failure, that's, that's, you know, that's where to look. And everything the government touches, it makes an absolute mess of. Not just this present government, but just in, in general, in everywhere around the planet. And usually the, the private sector can produce these things much, much, much easier, and m cheaper and better. So uh, what you need government to do is to, uh, uh, to, to do what its main function is. And, and according to Adam Smith, uh, that was really justice uh, and defence, which are big things. The justice industry, is, uh, justice sector is, is, is quite a, a big role for government and an expensive role for government. So you've got to raise tax as well, or somehow to finance it. So it's, it's not a small night watchman state in Smith, but um, at the same time, its focus is there. And what he says is that when kings and ministers um, start interfering in the economy, uh, they take on a job that they, they can't possibly do. It's just too big because the, the economy is, is so vibrant and it changes all the time and there's so many millions of people who are involved um, that uh, you can't possibly get it in your mind and you can't you can't set rules that are right. What you've got to do is to set the broad institutions, property, honesty, all of that sort of thing, um, and, uh, and then it's like a fire basket containing the fire, then the fire will, will prosper. Absolutely. And when we try and apply the lessons of, of Adam Smith and, well, the entire pantheon of free market economics and political theory to our current policy dilemmas, is it... Is there a way, do you think, that we can move the discussion away, particularly in the modern news cycle, 24-hour news cycle, from single issues that people become fixated on and say, the government must do this specific thing about this specific problem I have. Try and move the discussion away from that more towards what you've just described, the wider institutional framework. Hayek talked about general laws, but a lot of what Smith talks about is creating a proper incentive structure for human nature to do the best yes. that it can rather than try and change the nature. Uh, do you think there's a way we can do that? Because it's an important conversation to have, right? I think, I think this is extremely difficult. I wrote a book on democracy for the IEA, and I think we have a bit of a problem with democracy. I think that democracy has... Uh, the more you legitimise democracy... Um, then the more it strays into things which are, are no part of its business. And so now you've got politicians de uh, deciding um, what size your fizzy drinks can can be and things like that. It's got nothing to do with them. Um, you know, uh, according to Smith, uh, that all you need government to do is basically uh, peace, easy taxes and a tolerable administration of justice. That's, what, that's their main function. It isn't to tell you how to live. Um, it isn't to decide um, what you wear or what you put into your body and how much of it. Um, th that, is, that is for you to decide. And I think that is the, the, the difficulty with democracy. We're, we're used to thinking it's absolutely wonderful. Isn't democracy great? And to some extent it is great because everybody's involved. It's a, it's a break against tyranny and so on. This is, this is important stuff. 
But at the same time, it only works if it's confined to the things that it's there to do. And the thing it's there to do is to make decisions that we cannot make individually. Things like defence, I suppose, and policing justice. Uh, th those are things which are very difficult, at least, for individuals to do on their own. So, th so there you need government. But you should limit democracy to that. Uh, what, we, what we buy, what we eat and drink, um, you know, that's our business. Where we put our money, that's our business. Yeah, it's a means to an end rather than a good in and of itself, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, final thing I want to turn on to is that when we have, when Adam Smith is referenced in modern policy conversations, there are uh, a group of people who don't agree with our free market principles who would say that the lessons we should learn from Adam Smith are not the ones that we are discussing and supporting and trying to put forward now. There has been a, call it revisionist, I suppose, if you want, attempt to say that a lot of what Adam Smith wrote is friendly to some, for mm. example, provision of welfare, of education, of limiting inequality. Mm. What's, uh, what's your take on this? Do you think that there are merit to some of these claims, or do you think really... We, we can confidently read into Smith what is a sort of extreme free market <laughs> position in this day and age. I always say that Smith wasn't an economist. He was a, a social psychologist. He wrote on ethics. Um, he lectured on uh, jurisprudence. He lectured on politics. He lectured, lectured on, on art and uh, on, on language. Um, he was really a polymath. And when you look at his um, economics... Um, he believed in free trade and free markets for the same reason that I do, because it's the best way of helping the working poor. Right? The boss classes can look after themselves. Uh, but uh, if you actually want to have a nation, as, as Smith did, um, which is free and relative, uh, relatively equal, then uh, you need free markets. That's the way to do it. The, the most divided and unequal countries um, are the ones which are totalitarian dictatorships, frankly. You're either in or you're out, and there's no way of, of going between those. Whereas the, um, the uh, more capitalist countries tend to be uh, more equal economically, but also more equal socially. And Smith you know, was moved by the, the plight of ordinary people, ordinary working people, the poorest working people. Yes, of course, he'd seen, seen all that in Scotland. Um, and uh, his answer to that was, get all these regulations and these regulators and these crony capitalists out of the picture. And then once you've done that, people can make their own way through life and they'll do it beautifully. Absolutely. And this year is also 300 years since Adam Smith's birth going beyond his most famous piece of literature, The Wealth of Nations, uh, beyond the economic side of things, what else does he have to teach us 300 years on from his birth in, about our society, about our culture, about the way we think and philosophise and morality? Uh, are there any other key non-economic takeaways that you think ought to be Yes, well, mentioned his, more? his first book, and the, and the one that actually made him world, world famous, was not The Wealth of Nations, but, but The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And the theme of that fundamentally is that we are a social species and we like um, uh, helping and satisfying other people. Um, so uh, morality comes from the fact that, that we want to have the approval of lots of other, of, of other people. Uh, and so we do things that other people approve of and we don't do things that annoy them. <laughs> so so this, is, this is how the human mind works. And actually that 
spills over into his e economic thinking that um, the butcher and the brewer and the baker, um, they act in ways in which are actually beneficial to their customers, of course, and th that's their interest in their customers. Um, and uh, if you're in business, you have to be interested in your, your customers. People talk about, oh, these filthy capitalists making a quick buck. Okay, you can make one quick buck. You can't make two because your customers aren't going to come back again. Yeah. They'll know they've been cheated. So, um, so, so, so the, the moral philosophy actually is exactly the same as, as the economic philosophy. There is no so-called Adam Smith problem. It's this, it, you know, they're both bits of our mentality. Yeah, one of those bizarre areas where the people who think he has a problem are you know, people on the centre-left and also Ayn Rand. Um, <laughs> for everybody else in the middle, perhaps not so much of a problem. Eamon, thank you very much for joining us today for the podcast. Very interesting conversation. And we'll link your primer on uh, Adam Smith, on Milt Friedman and Friedrich Hayek in the description below. Thank you all very much for joining us. And uh, Eamon Butler, thank you. You're welcome.